Well, as we've been reading through uh, the Bible together in the year, I have drawn, I believe, uh, all of the messages from the Old Testament uh, until this morning. Uh, this morning I want us to look at Romans chapter 3. And the reason for that is that this is uh, arguably the most important in terms of concise and clear uh, depictions of the gospel uh, in all the Bible. So this is a section we need to know. It's a section that theologically we simply must understand. So Romans chapter 3, we're going to be reading at verse 9 down to the end of verse 26. Romans 3, 9 through 26. This is the word of God. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced, and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law, Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Well, before we uh, consider this passage together, we're going to pray, but just before uh, we pray... It's going to make mention of, of a few things to be thankful for, uh, one of which is the youngest person associated with our congregation has decided to come to our church service this morning. So, little Naomi Clemens coming in at three or four days, approximately, three or four, less than seven, more than one, 
Uh, Naomi Clemens is here, and so we're thankful that she brought her parents. Uh, well done, and uh, we're happy to have her. <laughs> And I did not, I did not know this, but unless my my vision is is not what it used to be, but is that is that Patrick and Gwyneth, all the way from what state are you in these days? Iowa, Iowa where everyone wants to live. That's where you are from, and we are glad that you have a reprieve from the Buckeye State and that you are here uh, with us again in Guelph. Wonderful to have you guys here, and also. Not to be outdone, all the way from Bogota, Colombia, Katie Martin. The last time I saw her, we were, uh, Sam and I and, and Katie and our driver were driving to the airport. And our driver was saying very helpful things like, this traffic is really bad. And then things like, oh, I think I missed the exit. So we were, it, was, it was quite, quite the ride. Uh, Katie's finished uh, her three years of teaching down at El Camino Academy, and so she's just going to come up and just give us a, a little, little word about that experience. The highlight of which was when we were there, for sure. Uh, I just asked Steve if I could just have a moment or two to use this opportunity to say thank you to you guys in person. It's such an honor and privilege to come back through these doors again this morning and get hugs from you all and just feel so welcome here again, even after three years away. And so I just wanted to say thank you so much, so, so much for supporting me financially and in prayer and uh, with hugs and food when I come home uh, the past three years in while I was in Bogota, Colombia. And thank you for allowing Pastor Sam and Pastor Steve to come visit me, and their time there was such a huge blessing to our community. Uh, Steve spent time teaching the missionary teachers there, and he spoke at our staff retreat, and it was just phenomenal. People were talking about it the rest of the year. So, um, And also to welcome and receive one of my students, Mateo Navarro, for a week um, was more than I could have possibly imagined and asked God for to see him be received by you guys and to really feel like my family was being connected. So um, I would love to meet with some of you maybe like the second week of August I have free. So please come see me after the service and I can get in touch with you if you would like to have a just like a small get together and I can explain more details about my time there and what God did because I really, truly believe that you guys partnered with me, and I want you to receive the fruit and the blessing of what God did in South America as well. I, I don't want to keep that to myself because it's not just uh, my inheritance, it's yours as well. So thank you so much, and hopefully I'll talk to you after. All right, well, before we continue the section in Romans chapter 3, let's pray. Our Father, we are aware when, as we read these words, that we come to uh, a revelatory pinnacle of who you are and who we are, uh, both outside of your grace and covered by your grace. So I pray that you will help us, wherever we are this morning, whether we uh, know Christ or not, help us to see who you are and the relationship that we are in with you, 
And help us to see the outcome of, of living and dying without you and living and dying reconciled to you through Jesus. Give us insight and understanding so we can grasp some uh, core theological concepts and give us open hearts to adore and to appreciate and to admire all that you have done for us in Jesus Christ. Lord, uh, we would ask that your spirit, because it's only by your spirit that we can enter into the reality of life and truth, I pray that your spirit will guide us and direct us, fill us even now. Your spirit who, who inspired Paul as he wrote uh, these words. Lord, we know every word here is, is written by Paul, but breathed out by your mouth simultaneously. And so we ask that your spirit who knows your mind and knows what every word means and also knows how every word should apply in our own context and lives, we pray that your spirit uh, will be the one who teaches us your word this morning. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have read uh, the first two chapters in Romans... You know that Paul is working diligently to establish two things. He's establishing that Gentiles are completely lost in their sin, and Jews are completely lost in their sin. He's categorically, universally showing there is no one who is right before God. Uh, The first chapter, especially verses 18 through 32, after some preliminaries and introductory material, Paul demonstrates that, particularly in the Gentile world, there are all of these horrific manifestations of sin and evil and immorality because the root problem is a rejection of God. And we need, to, we need to remind ourselves of that. I think actually uh, one of the difficulties that we have, even when it comes to social engagement, is we are forever attacking the fruit of sin and leaving the root systems intact. So that we will get very upset, we'll get very exercised about, you know, look at what our society is proud of. How can people be, how can people be celebrating these things? And so we go along and we attack the, the fruit, but it's, it's just the manifestation and so you could even, you could even, in some ways, correct the manifestation socially, but then you'll just find out just a little bit later there's a different type of manifestation. The, the problem isn't precisely what people are doing. The problem is why are they doing it? There's a heart root issue that in different lives produces different types of fruit. There's different manifestations of sin. But every single manifestation of sin comes from the exact same problem, which is a rejection of God. Not considering the glory of God worth having. Not consider God worth knowing. Deciding that we would be better off setting our own agendas, coming up with our own laws and rules, and running our own lives rather than submitting to God. That's the problem. We reject God. That works itself out in all kinds of different ways in different lives. That's not the real issue, though. So you read through Romans 1, and you see all of these manifestations of sin, all from the root source of rejection of God, just not considering him worth knowing. Then in chapter 2, amongst other things, Paul argues to the Jews, listen, don't think that you're any better just because you have the covenant law. 
Don't think you're any better just because you have the legacy of prophets and patriarchs. You have the same heart condition. Your religious works will never make you right before God. So whether you're coming from coming uh, to God or whether you're related to God completely outside of covenant law or whether you're in the covenant, it's irrelevant unless your heart is right with God by faith. Paul's going to make that argument in Romans 4 at great length. Abraham is justified by faith. He's the father and the model for every one of God's children. You will never be justified by the law or by the things that represent the law like circumcision. This is why in Romans 4, Paul will argue at length that Abraham was justified before he was circumcised. You say, well, why is that so important? Well, it's so important because the Jews were arguing that you needed to be circumcised in order to be made right with God. It was the sign of the covenant. And Paul's saying, no, if you just read your Bible historically, you'll know that that can't be true. In chronological sequence, Abraham is justified by faith before he's circumcised, so circumcision cannot be required for salvation. It can't be, or else Abraham couldn't have been justified by God previous to circumcision. Paul makes the case so strongly that he ends in verses 9 through 18 by quoting this collection of verses, this katina of verses from the book of Psalms. He's already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin, and now he, he clinches it with Old Testament uh, truth. There is no one righteous, not even one, Paul quotes. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now, it's very, very difficult to read that section and think that there's someone who does what's good. Uh, there's not a lot of room here for exceptions. We always want to be the exception. We always ourselves somehow imagine that we are exceptions to rules. We, we're very good at doing that. Very good at rationalizing, very good at justifying. But you can't read this text and imagine that somehow you escape the universality of no one, not even one, no one, no one, all together, no one, not even one. That includes you. Okay? You are not an exception to this. Which means you're not righteous. Which means spiritually, in the sight of God, you're worthless. Which means that you don't do good. Which means that you're not seeking God. It means that you do not understand there is no one, including you, who is good on their own in the sight of God. Not a single person, ever. So, was, does that include someone like Mother Teresa? Yes. Does that include Gandhi? Yes. Martin Luther King Jr.? Yes. No one no matter what they do, is right with God on the basis of what they do. If good works are the outflow of faith, it's still not the good works that saves. It's the faith in Christ that saves, which then generates good works. That is, our good works are not the root system any more than the manifestations of sin are the root system. 
The root system is the rejection of God. It manifests itself in different ways. The root system for the righteous is faith in Christ. It then manifests itself in different ways, in good works, by producing the fruit of righteousness. But in both cases, if you just start looking at fruit, you'll be mistaken as to the source. You'll be mistaken as to the cause. Now, on the other hand, Paul is also arguing, listen, you can have all kinds of religious works. You can do all kinds of things that look good, but are rejected by God because you're doing them for yourselves. You're trying to earn your own favor with God or whatever it is. You're trying to work so that your religious system brings you right, it brings you to a right relationship with God. And there's all kinds of people who are involved in all kinds of humanitarian charities. There are all kinds of people who make great sacrifices for their religious convictions, and they're still not in a right relationship with God because they're not approaching God by faith in faith alone. So, so, so I tell you this. Um, you, you can take, I want to be careful here, but you, you, can take, you, can take a mother, you can take Mother Teresa as, as a prime example. I tell you, there is nothing that she did in her life which made her right with God. Nothing. If she did not have genuine faith in Jesus Christ, trusting in Christ's righteousness alone for salvation, then no matter what she did in terms of mercy ministries in India, she was not saved. You are not saved through accumulating heroic numbers of good works. It's not how it works. And this should be non-controversial in evangelicalism. There is just no one who is saved apart from a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. They've all turned away. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. The reality is if you want to know sin, if you want to know why people are sinful or how people are sinful, just listen to how people talk. The first thing Paul does, interesting enough, when he wants to prove the universality of sin, is he says, just listen to people's words. Just listen to people's speech. And it starts from inside and comes out, from the throat to the tongue to the lips, coming from the heart, the overflow. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. But it's not just speech, it's action. Their feet are swift to shed blood. They're violent. Ruin and misery mark their way. Think about how much misery there is in the world. Uh, on all sorts of levels. Globally, relationally, in families, and uh, amongst neighbors, and even individually. Sin produces misery. They do not know the way of peace. There's no fear of God before their eyes. They just do not reverence God the way that he deserves. Now, Paul then says this. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. In other words, God has given you his law. He's given you his moral precepts and standards. He's told you how to live. And the great mistake is to think that God has given you those standards to provide you with a system of ethical religiosity, which if you follow strictly enough, will get you all the way to God's presence in heaven. It's a massive error. It's the error of all religions in the world. Here's what you do. If you just follow this closely enough, you will be okay in the end. Paul says, that's not why the law was given. The law was given to break us in showing us our utter inability to do enough to honor God. The law doesn't make us righteous. The law shows us how unrighteous we are. 
so that we'll stop relying on ourselves, so we'll stop trying to earn it, because we just can't. If those who had the prophets and the covenant law were sinful in God's sight, what hope does anyone else have? In other words, if even those who had that, all of that old covenant revelation, if even they could not make themselves right with God on the basis of performance, what, what hope does anyone else have who's outside of that old covenant law? That's Paul's argument here. And the answer is there's no hope at all. You're supposed to read verse 20 after following Paul's train of thought in this book, and you're supposed to think, that in yourself there is no hope at all, and there never can be. There is nothing that will, you will ever be able to do that will reverse this situation of utter lack of righteousness. There is nothing you will ever be able to do in order to be made right with God. You have completely failed to understand the basic uh, principles that Paul is driving at if you haven't got that by the time you hit chapter 3, verse 20. If Paul's letter stopped there, we amongst, as well as, well as with everyone else, would be forced to live in despair without any hope at all. There is no hope in you. There is no hope in us. There never has been. There never will be. The only thing that we have is a fearful expectation of judgment and wrath and hell in ourselves. There is no hope in us. We will never remedy the situation. And even if we were to live perfectly from now on, which we're not going to, it still would not make up for what we've done in the past. And you can kind of imagine that argument. If someone committed a murder a day, for 20 years and then went to the court and said, well, you know, how about you just, just let's just let that slide because I'm not going to kill anyone in the future. Even if that person didn't kill anyone in the future, it's not likely that we would feel that justice was satisfied if all of those 20 years of daily murder were forgotten or ignored on the basis of them not committing murder in the future. And there's a lot of people who seem to act that way too. That somehow, as long as it's far enough in the past, then God's not going to worry about it. But on the day of judgment, our whole life is going to be sorted out. Our, our entire life is going to come under the purview of God as the judge. No, even if we could live perfectly from now on, that would be irrelevant to past sin and past conduct. It just wouldn't make up for it in any way. So there is no hope whatsoever. That's the major message. In fact, so this isn't, um, this isn't good news, right? This is actually bad news. This is the anti-gospel. Uh, you know, if the gospel is good news, this is the anti-gospel. This is bad news. And yet, fascinatingly, Paul, who knows how to unfold things properly theologically, does not start with good news. He starts with bad news. That, I think is necessary because people won't understand why they need Christ unless they understand their need, which is their sin. 
And, and somehow in evangelism, we, we, we've missed this because we don't want to offend anyone. So we just keep telling people the love of God. And, and, and Jesus, died for their, Jesus died on the cross for them to show God's love. And, and maybe yeah, you might want to add sin there a little bit. But Paul doesn't start with the good news. He starts with the bad news. He starts with saying, this is your disease. Because it's unless you know how serious the disease is that you'll understand your absolute need of the remedy. So he begins with the bad news. But then he transitions to the good news. Because the glory is, there's absolutely no hope in you, but there is hope for you. It's not internal. There's nothing inside of you that's good news. But there is external good news. There's external hope. Because what you can't do, maybe God can do for you. Maybe God is the Savior. Maybe God is the Lord. Maybe God in His sovereignty can put together a redemptive plan which can include you. If it's up to you, you're done. You're going to pack it in. But what if God is a saving God? What if the arm of the Lord is not too short to accomplish all of His redemptive purposes? What if there's an era of revelation where in spite of all of our sin, God is going to act to bring us into a right relationship with Him. But, contrast, transition, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Shifting in focus from sin and death and misery and evil to a new era of salvation. But now, Paul says, the righteousness of God is being revealed. In chapter 1, verse 18, he says, the wrath of God is being revealed. And then he argues all the way through 3.20 why the wrath of God is being revealed and how just it is that it is being revealed. But now, after all of this reading about the wrath of God being revealed, now the righteousness of God is being revealed. There's both of them. There's wrath against sin, but there's also righteousness. The righteousness language here is simply to be on the right side of a standard. God is the standard. The standard actually flows from his own character. He is righteous, not by conformity to anything outside of himself. He is righteous because all of ethics and morality, goodness, purity, holiness, all of it flows from who he is. He himself is the standard. He himself establishes right and wrong as an outflow and reflection of his own intrinsic splendor in nature. And so the righteousness, of, the righteousness of God is being revealed because now God is showing people, this is the only way that you can be on the right side of me. That you can be on the right side of the law, the right side of the standard. The only way that you can be righteous is if I make you righteous. If you are going to be righteous, it has to be, older theologians uh, would refer to before, you know, before too much of the sci-fi genre and movies, uh, older theologians would refer to an alien righteousness. That is something outside of us, something different from us, alien from us, given to us. This is an alien righteousness. It's not intrinsic or internal to us. It's something that comes to us from God. The righteousness of God has been made known. And it's not based on law. It's apart from law. 
And this is good news because you've just been told that on the basis of law, on the basis of law keeping, the whole world is going to be condemned. And so if God says, well, listen, here's my righteousness, you'll have it if you keep the law, the righteousness of God would be revealed, but it wouldn't help us. We'd still be damned. But no, it's the righteousness of God apart from law. However, the law and the prophets testify to it. It's still part of God's plan. It's always been God's plan. It was always going to be this way. The law and the prophets are testifying to God's grace in sending a Messiah. From the very beginning, the law was saying there will be, substitution, there will be a substitutionary sacrifice. There will be substitutionary blood. From the very beginning, the prophets are, are, are proclaiming, enough with your religious festivities. God hates them. Because your hearts aren't right. Cling to it. Repent. Cling to him by faith. Then come and worship. But don't just come and present sacrifices as if the act of sacrificing a lamb will somehow make you right with God. Worship him as the overflow, as the outflow, as the result, as the consequence, as the fruit of receiving him by, or sort of receiving all, all that he is for you by faith. But if you're not coming by faith, and don't come at all, the prophets are saying. You know, if you're going you're to come and you're going to sing songs, but it's not from a heart of faith, then just, just be quiet, the prophets are saying. I think that's too strong. In Amos, God says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. That, that's not weak language. I hate when you get together, God says. Who asks of you this trampling of my courts? Now, God's, God's not overly sort of raptured in awe listening to the quality of our singing. No, God doesn't want us to gather together at all unless we're gathering by faith with hearts that love him. We're never interested in, in the blood of bulls and goats. Those are, those are symbols and signs. The problem that we have as idolatrous individuals is that we tend to elevate the signs and the symbols to the idolatrous position of the reality rather than, than recognizing what they were pointing towards. That's what Israel had done. We, we, we some of us in, in, in ostensibly Christian churches do the same thing. Well, if you, if you just have put in you know, three out of four Sundays a month and tithe, defining tithe as 2%, then you're fine. Then you're okay. How much does God really expect from me? I read the daily bread once a week. Uh, I pray before most meals. What, I, I'm, I'm doing... God says, no, there's, no one has ever, ever, ever ever in history been made right with me on the basis of what they do. Never. Not in the Old Covenant era, not in the New Covenant era, never. The righteousness of God will always be apart from law. It will always be apart from human performance. It will always be apart from religious ritual. Always. You'll never be made righteous on that basis. The law and the prophets testified to it. The law and the prophets told you you need more than us. You need a Messiah. You need a Savior. You need the fulfillment. 
the reality of all of these shadows and types. Verse 22, this righteousness, this righteousness of God. And of course, the other thing, if it's the righteousness of God, it's good enough for God, right? I mean, my righteousness, I might be as righteous as I could possibly be, and it's not going to be acceptable to God. But if it's the righteousness of God, then it clearly meets his own standard. And so this is the great glorious thing about it, that God gives me his own righteousness. What else could I want? What else do I need? There's no other judge. If God says this is right, then it's right. If God says this is righteousness, then it's righteousness. His view is the only one that matters. This righteousness is given through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe. Do you hear that? Yes, one would think it might even be worth more than that. (laughs) It's just given you. After all of this material about just working and working and working and working and working and the end result is damnation, God says, hmm, well, you're all, not not a single one of you down there who's righteous, not even one. Not a single one of you understands. You've all turned away from me. You're all worthless. Not a single one of you is any good at all. Not even one. You're wicked in your speech. You're wicked in your thoughts. You're evil in your heart. You're shedding blood. You're ruining, in, you're ruining life and making everyone miserable. You don't know anything about peace and you don't fear me. In fact, when I look at my law, you're all damned. Categorically, every one of you. And you deserve it. So, how about I give you my righteousness? See, unless you're overly familiar with the gospel, you don't expect that to be the conclusion. You don't expect that to be what God's going to do. I mean, work it out yourself. What would you do? How would you treat people who treated you that way, who were like that? Here's a gift. I'll give you my righteousness because because if I don't, you have no hope. You are quite, in in the most literal sense, you are hopeless. And so I'll give you my righteousness. I'll take care of this. Because if I don't do it out of my own sovereign will, it will be impossible to be done. If I do not do it, it will never change. If I don't do it, you will be lost with no hope at all. And you can't earn it. So I can't even require you to do anything. That's how worthless you are. So I'll do it all. I will do 100% of what you need to be saved. All of it. And I won't even reserve the smallest little smidgen for your goodness and works because you don't even have that. This is why the the Bible is very clear. Salvation is from the Lord. It's not from us. We contribute nothing. What we bring to the table is sin and guilt and shame and death. That's all we contribute to our salvation. Do you you ever think about that? The only thing we bring to the table is spiritual liability. There is not one single spiritual asset we bring to the bargaining table. And we don't even have the right to say to God, well, you know, God, you know, I, I may not be perfect. 
I may have my foibles and my sins and my idiosyncrasies and all of the rest, but you know, if, if you bring me into your kingdom, I've got a pretty awesome slate of abilities that you might find really useful. No, we're told next, he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. He does not need me. He does not need you. In fact, don't you suspect that God can do everything that we do, but just a lot better? No, he, he looks at us and he says, I have to do it all. 100%. If there's going to be salvation, it's 100% from me. For people who deserve the opposite. But then he does it. Now, not only is it a free gift to us, and it's for all who believe. This is the same as, as that, that, that universal condemnation. Every single person who is universally condemned, if any one of those people puts their faith in Jesus, they will be saved. Categorically. it's, It's universal categories. If you do not have faith in Jesus, you will be lost. Any single person who puts their faith in Jesus Christ will be saved. It's how it works. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, no matter what you've done, anyone who puts their faith in Jesus receives the righteousness of God. All of sin. All fall short of the glory of God. That's not even a question. And all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Justified means to be pronounced right, to be pronounced righteous, to be pronounced to be on the right side of the standard. It's a forensic legal term here. It means that in the court where God is the judge, he looks at you and he says, when I look at, your, when I look at you on the basis of my absolute perfection and utterly holy moral standard, You're on the right side of my law. You're in the right, in my view. You say, well, how can that be possible if he's looking at us? It's possible because he's given us his own righteousness. At this point, in terms of absolute salvation, he's assessing us on the basis of his own merit. It's the merit of Christ. That argument will be made later. But he's looking at us on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not our own sin and wickedness and guilt. Again, justified freely by his grace. It's just a gift. It's it's the most utterly undeserved, unimaginable gift. But it's yours. Nothing could be less deserved by people who deserve the diametrical opposite. And nothing could be greater. And it's free. Like... Listen, I, I, I know your psychology. You don't think I do. But if I had, you know, just, just a, a whole pocket full of coupons for free quarter chicken dinners at Swish LA and went, went around distributing them to all of you, you'd be pumped. You know, you, you'd be leaving here going, oh, that's so amazing. A free quarter chicken and it's Steve's the best, right? And, and you'd probably be leaving saying that part anyway, no matter if I give you coupons or not. Uh, but you'd be, you'd be thinking, oh, this is so wonderful. A free gift. Who doesn't love a free gift? He's got eternal life for free given to you by God. What do you do with that? It's eternal life. It doesn't expire either. It's another thing. But you know, it's not free to God. It's only free to us. 
This comes through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Redemption language is purchase language. It's cost language. There was a payment for your eternal life. There was a payment for you to be righteous. And it's not a payment that you could ever pay. God paid it for you. And he paid it in blood and death and agony. You don't take the wrath of God, not because God just pretends, just sort of sweeps his wrath away. You don't take the wrath of God because God's Son absorbed it on your behalf. The redemption price was nothing but less than the life of Jesus Christ, his shed blood. Because we, in God's sight, do deserve death, and justice requires our death. Death pays our legal debt and guilt. But Christ Jesus substitutes himself in our place. His death is in our place. He pays the price for our legal spiritual indebtedness to God, which is infinite. All of that wrath in Romans 1, 18 through 3, 20. All of that wrath for all of that sin. And, and, and our sin is unimaginable, both in quality and quantity. We don't even know how many ways we sin. Let alone what it actually is in the sight of God. And all of that, Christ pays for. All of that, all of those people, not even a single one who's righteous. Christ dies for all of those who put their faith in him. Christ sheds his blood. He buys them out of spiritual slavery and debt and death. So it's free to you. Oh, there is nothing in all of the universe which is actually free for us except eternal life in Jesus. There's also nothing in all of this universe that was more costly to buy than our freedom from sin and our eternal life. You can't put a, Peter says you can't put a present. He didn't buy us with silver and gold. You can't add it up. It was with the infinite value of the blood of Christ. That's what purchased you. Free to you. The most expensive thing that goes beyond material value. Paid for by God's Son. Given to you. You know, we we all have a desire to be loved. And we all have a desire to be valued. We all have a desire to to receive thoughtful gifts. If you're a believer, you you must never, never look for your love and value and gifts from people. Find it in Jesus. You are infinitely loved. You are given a gift of infinite, eternal value. Find all of your security and acceptance in him. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Now, this is a, this is a difficult uh, word concept to translate uh, because almost every way you can bring it across in English unless you have a great familiarity with the Old Testament makes it somewhat opaque. Uh, it, it's a sacrifice of atonement. It's the mercy seat. It's propitiation. All of these things basically amount to this. 
When Jesus died on the cross, he satisfied the wrath of God. He was, God is able to treat us with favor because his wrath is satisfied by his Son. It is in the person of his Son that our sins are cleansed. It is in the person of his Son that God's wrath is satisfied. It's in the person of his Son where our sins are wiped away, where our debts are paid. All of these sort of images collect around the sacrifice of atonement or the propitiation. But the one, the one aspect that is essential to understand is that there is a, there's a very important essential aspect of wrath in this idea. God is justly filled with wrath and anger because of sin. Jesus Christ, in his own body, is the mercy seat. He himself is the place where God's wrath is satisfied because it is fully poured out. And Jesus endures it all. Again, for our sake. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. This is actually fascinating. Today, a lot of people struggle with this. Say, the way they formulate the theological issue is this way. How can God punish people who are basically good? How can God punish sinners. Well, you can only possibly think that if you haven't read Romans 1 through 3.20, or if you just think that Paul's wrong. And if you think that Paul's wrong, then you don't need to worry about God punishing anyone because you have such a different religious view of God that it's irrelevant. So you don't have a problem that way. In the Bible, there is no problem with God punishing sinners. That just makes sense. But there is a really difficult problem in the Bible which in our, our culture we basically completely ignore or miss. And that problem is this. How on earth can God ever have a relationship with sinners? The problem in the Bible isn't how can God punish sinners, it's how can God befriend them? How can God bless them? How can God love them? How can God adopt them? How can God give a sinner any blessing whatsoever? How can God do anything other than damn a sinner immediately? How can a sinner even be alive? That's the theological question. On the day you sin, you shall die. The wages of sin is death. Why is God being patient? What's he doing? How can a holy God endure any of us? Any of this? That's the theological problem. And if you don't see that, or if that seems horrific to you, I tell you, it's because you don't understand what the Bible says about people and about God. We are far more sinful than we think. God is far more holy than we can even possibly imagine. So in the Bible, the problem is how can God have a right relationship with any sinner? David, Moses, anyone. And this is how. Even before Christ died, God knew his redemptive plan. And Abraham and Moses, David, whoever had faith in him, whoever trusted in God, was covered by the fulfillment of the Old Testament law and prophets, which was the death and blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
Whoever had faith in God and God's promises was covered by the atonement of Christ. People who lived before Jesus were not saved apart from Jesus. No one is saved apart from Jesus, no matter when they've lived. They didn't have a full understanding of the gospel, obviously. They didn't know the name Jesus, but they trusted in God's plan and promises and were included under the righteousness of the Messiah. That's how God can bless sinners. That's how God can love us. That's how God can call us his friends. That's how God can adopt us. That's how God can have a relationship with us. The great theological solution to the great theological problem is God can have a relationship with sinners because he has paid for their sin. He has made them righteous. He's transformed them in His Son. God can't be just and justify us. God can't be righteous and say we're righteous unless He makes us righteous. We can't make ourselves righteous. So He makes us righteous by paying our debt, then clothing us, imputing the righteousness of Jesus Christ to our account. It's actually brilliant. It's the only possible way it would work. We have to be as righteous as God to be right in his sight. And he made us as righteous as he is. He did it. Through the death of the Son. Because sin has to be paid. Sin can't be ignored. All of that wrath needs to be justly vented. All of that wrath needs to be judicially exhausted or else God is not righteous. And God finds a way to do it all. To do it all. At infinite cost to his son. And then given freely to you. Well, may God help us. May God help us to understand, not fully because we never will, but even just, just basically enough to appreciate who we are in God's sight, what we deserve, what he has given us, and what it costs him. If we just sorted a little bit of it, uh, if we just sorted that out just a little bit, it would literally transform our lives even now. And we would realize that it is these themes that will cause us praising God throughout all of eternity. We have an opportunity uh, now to praise God uh, in song. So I'm going to ask our musicians to come and lead us in our closing song.